Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. Very excited to bring you a discussion today that deals very specifically with the theology of some progressive Christian leaders such as Brian McLaren and Tony Jones. We're going to talk about it with a special guest on today's podcast. My guest today is Dr. R. Scott Smith, a professor at Biola University in the Christian Apologetics Program. His master's is in philosophy of religion and ethics from Talbot School of Theology at Biola. His PhD is in religion and social ethics, and that's from USC. He's written several books, and most recently he's written a book that has really helped me in my research, and it's called Authentically Emergent, In Search of a Truly Progressive Christianity, which is a bit of a provocative title there. Uh, It's a very thorough and gracious yet critical look at the theology of progressive Christian leaders like Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, and Doug Padgett. Scott, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. This is particularly exciting for me because there just isn't a lot out there that is addressing this topic. I'm seeing more and more as time goes on, uh, but I'm just really thankful for your contribution to this conversation. What was it that first interested you in the theology of the emergent church? How did that come together for you? Well, my first book um, on the topic was called Truth and the New Kind of Christian and came out late 2005. And it started because I was trying to come up with a book on addressing postmodernism's influences in the church. And so I was shopping the manuscript one time at the Evangelical Theological Society's uh, national meeting, and I was talking with a publisher there, a representative, and he said, you know, let's talk about this. And when he called me, he asked me, do you know who's the number one seller of all these writers, you know, who are writing as Christian postmoderns? I go, uh, let me guess, uh, maybe uh, Stanley Harawas, Stan Grins, you know, I, I didn't know. <laughs> he said, yeah. it's, it's Brian McLaren. And my, my, I was kind of like, who's he? <laughs> <laughs> and that started me. Um, I, you know, started digging into that because of his recommendation. And that got me, um, you know, reading some of Brian's early books and his uh, f- fictional tr- trilogy and then Tony Jones and some of his stuff, and I saw connections with the postmodern kind of mindsets. And that's what initiated it. Um, And then when I was teaching uh, my first class uh, on the emerging church here at uh, Viola as part of this program, I was using my book. This was summer 2006. And I had um, an interview with Tony. Uh, You know, in there a lot. uh, He was up in Minnesota. It was just audio. 
And I think the Lord really impressed on me a particular question to ask him. And it, it was not on my mind at all uh, beforehand. You could see it in that first book. It just wasn't on my radar screen. But it was something like, ask him what he sees as the connection between my son's suffering on the cross and the body, you know, the body of Christ. And I was like, uh, you know, that just was not, you know, something I'd really thought about. But I asked him. And it was fascinating, you know, to hear his answers. And I had some people in the audience. One of them was one of our grads who was at Fuller at the time. And he was able to say, hey, I can tell you where this stuff's going because of classes I'm in. And he started making these connections in different ways that just really opened my eyes in ways I had no idea. And actually, that's when the ideas for this book started. Um, because I didn't see uh, so many of these different connections, um, like uh, their their views about what kind of thing we are, you know, human beings, you know, uh, and the implications then for the atonement and sin and all sorts of things, and that just led to you know a, a snowball kind of effect. Mm. And one thing I really appreciate about your book is that you didn't just read these guys' books. You didn't just research on your own. You actually interacted with them via email and even in person and really sought to understand their arguments. You, you know, you're not just building a straw man to mm. knock it down. And I, I think that brings a great value mm. to your book. So I'm interested when you had that interaction, it seems like what he was asking was really an atonement question. So what were some, some of the thoughts he gave when, when you asked him about that? Well, as I recall, um, he well, first of all, he started very interestingly. He said that um, it, he thought it was very interesting that I asked the question because it turns out that at his church, which is Solomon's Porch, you know, with Doug Paget, um, they were discussing this very topic. <laughs> so I thought, well, that was interesting, first of all. And then I just let him go and let him just talk. I just wanted to listen and let my students listen. And I remember, the main thing I remember is at one point he made a comment, something like this, that uh, Jesus's example on the cross was the greatest example of humility, you know, ever, or for any of us. And the thought that went through my mind, but I didn't say it was, was that all it is, perhaps, you know, in your thinking? And I didn't know. But I wondered that. And then, and then afterwards, you know, talking with some of the audience is like, okay, there are, there was more, you know, beneath the surface than I realized. But that's the main thing I remember him saying. So many Christians are aware of the term emergent church. That that seems, in my experience, they tend to know what that is. And then, kind of a more modern phrase is progressive Christianity, which really it seems like is just basically what the emergent movement has evolved into now. Uh, can you walk us through the history of emergent thought? How, how did the whole thing get started to get us where we are today? You know, I was trying to uh, think back to one of their books that actually um, explains some of that. And I think Tony Jones, I, I've, I didn't have a chance to verify that, but I think in the beginning of Tony Jones's book called The New Christians, I think he explains a lot of that. And roughly, and this kind of, you know, by memory here, um, it started as a conversation among several 
concerned um, pastors and youth workers who were noticing changes in the 1990s, you know, to in mindsets of the youth they were working with, and the kinds of questions and attitudes, uh, techniques, maybe even that uh, they had been taught or grew up with. Um, as leaders were not the kinds of things that were working or connecting you know, with the youth they were working with. And so they were trying to figure out what's going on here. And they started digging a whole lot into it. Brian McLaren became part of this um, think tank, I guess you could call it. I, I think it was originally called the Terra Nova Project. Uh, that That's mm-hmm. my loose memory. Um Leadership Network, I think, helps sponsor that, you know, to get people together uh, and discuss things. I think Paget was one of the first people, uh, you know, involved in that, too. Tony Jones, you know, as well, a number of others. Uh, Dan Kimball, you know, as well. Um, and I think what they noticed is their diagnosis was that these things were, these mindsets and techniques and ideas were just too modern, you know, kind of how they pinpointed it, mm-hmm. that instead we are in postmodern times. And so things had to shift. It, there was a disconnect, you know, from the youth they were working with. But McLaren saw it beyond that, too, not just youth, but other people he was ministering to. And, um, you know, I think, you know, in in their seeing those kinds of effects, uh, I forget the guy's name who brought to bear. It wasn't Chris C.A., but uh, oh, I'm forgetting his name. But he, fo- he brought to light a lot of the philosophical kinds of influences, too. But um, over time, I think we've seen, you know, with McLaren, um, one of the things he, he fed back to me after uh, my first book on this was that um, he wasn't so concerned about postmodern epistemology as he was about ethics mm. and how, how it seems like so many well-meaning Christians um, – from this so-called modern age or influenced by a modern thought could seem to get things so wrong and take some very unethical stances, he thought. And so, um, you know, I, I saw them uh, publish a lot, you know, with uh, Zondervan at the time and Baker Books, you know, too. So with uh, evangelical type publishing houses. But that's changed. You know, they're uh, they're now with some of the biggest presses, you know, Harper One, you know, for example, Random House. But one of the things that happened, I think, that made a shift of that, at least that I kind of experienced also at uh, the ETS, you know, kind of conferences. Mm-hmm. It seemed like um, there were some real strong, maybe even strident Calvinists, you know, who really made some very strong critiques um, in fact, I had a guy once at one of my presentations giving an update on McLaren's thought, and he stood up in the audience and basically said, uh, after I finished my talk, he said, um, can't, can't we just, you know, kind of cut to the chase and just call them all heretics <laughs> right. and let's move on, you know, kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. And I think that was kind of evidence of that mindset. It's like, hey, we've, we've done this. We've decided this. Let's move on. Yeah. I experience that even in my work when I write about progressive Christianity or if I'll uh, review a Rob Bell book or something like that. It, inevitably, there'll be somebody that will comment on Facebook or somewhere, hey, yeah. why are you even bother with this? Like, what's the, we know that these people, but I think what they don't understand is that a, for the average Christian, it's it's more difficult to see and to discern uh, when s- so much of it sounds good and and it, yeah. and it can be a little more difficult. So like 
the idea exactly. that nobody's listening to Rob Bell anymore just isn't true. A lot of people exactly. are. A lot of Christians are. Yeah, if they weren't, I don't think these guys would be getting signed on with Harper One and some of these other houses. Right. Because yeah. they, w- I don't think they'd take them on if they didn't feel there was a market you know, for yeah, them. Yeah, for sure. I think their influence has morphed and has just changed its shape. And I think that uh, a lot of evangelicals, they're just not – these guys aren't on their radar screens anymore because yeah. of those kinds of critiques. I think that's true. And I've noticed in the progressive world that there's kind of this animosity toward Calvinists. It's, there's there's definitely a some bad blood there. <laughs> Uh, so on the flip side of that coin, you have modern evangelicalism, which, you know, a lot of people are saying, I don't even know what that word means anymore because it's just <laughs> taken on so many different shapes. But let's talk about yeah. the history of that and what what factors helped shape the church in the West? Quite a few, and I'm sure I'm going to miss some, but I'll, I'll point to a few. Um, I'll, I'll mention a great resource uh, that I used a lot was George Marsden's Fundamentalism in American Culture. It's not the only you know source I would you know uh, recommend, but I think it's a very important one, and he highlights a lot of these very things. Um, w- one of them was how shaped uh, evangelicals in this country uh, or the U.S. you know were shaped by. Um, the influences of the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment. Um, you know, there was a, a lot of, um, you know, really good things, you know, holding on to, I think, orthodox beliefs. You know, I think that was, you know, a great heritage, you know, that our forebearers did. Um, but there were things that we start, and Marsden helps surface some of this, but if you look, you know, in some other ways, you can see other play, other factors too. And one was how deeply wed, wedded they were to the idea of science as it came through the revolution. Um, I rem- I'm trying to remember who it is who says this, but Marsden cites several people uh, from our evangelical heritage who um, basically you know, thought that to do theology properly, you've got to do it as a science. Mm. Well, the science of the times you know, that they inherited – was one that focused on empirical means um, and also had this idea of a mechanical atomism. So basically, creation and we are mechanisms um, and we're fundamentally made up of atoms. So how do you factor in a soul with that was, a, well, an interesting question. You know, so there's a, a tension, at least in the views, even if I didn't see him deny that we had souls, but there's a tension there. Mm-hmm. And you start playing out this kind of idea. If, if the universe is really made that way, it, it lends itself to a more deistic you know, kind of view of mm-hmm. God. So even kind of unconsciously, I, ideas have consequences, I think. And one of the unconscious ones could be over time is that Functionally, at least, God was kind of deist, de, uh, diff, sorry, say deistic, distant from us, um, and not so intimate and personal, you know, with us. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's part of it, um, and I think that um, you know by emphasizing you know uh, science uh, as the yardstick for all knowledge. It, it tends to marginalize, even in Christians' minds, it could start marginalizing the reality of things like souls, angels, God, or any other immaterial sorts of things. 
Um, and, and so one of the things Marsden points out really well is that there was such a strong confidence in the truth of Christianity, which is good, you know, I think. But at the same time, they had a, a, an overconfidence, I think, in our reasons abilities called common sense. You know, it was just a matter of common sense to them that what the Bible said was true. Well, I, I think that's fine, but when it got challenged, <laughs> then they didn't have a real response ready for that. Yeah. And they kind of let science develop on its own without trying to think, how, how should this integrate with Christianity? So when Darwinism finally came along as the big break, they had nothing to say to that except that it was, oh, that's just not you know good science. They had no answers but it was like the rug got pulled out from under them and got put on the defensive, uh, you know, very much. So those are a few factors. And that points us really to one of the main points of your book, which is that Christians have been deeply influenced by naturalism, which I found really interesting because I had never really thought of it in that way before I read your book. And in a moment, we're going to get into some of the disagreements that you have with the theology of people like Brian McLaren and Tony Jones. Uh, but before we get to that, I just wanted to mention again, I kind of alluded to this before, but I love uh, this about your book is that you are as charitable as possible while still maintaining truth. And so uh, you mentioned some contributions that progressive thought leaders have given that are helpful or even maybe positive. So before we get into the negative stuff, let's talk a little bit about those positive contributions. What would you what would you say they are? Well, first of all, I appreciate your saying, you know, that uh, you you can see that I was trying to be, uh, you know, um, charitable uh, and not just. Uh, Okay, you know, let's let's critique it you know, here. Yeah, let's let's pull out the the fire hose and you right. know blast them all away. Be, because um, I really tried to do that in all my writings, and I and I really wanted to do that here. Um, and and plus, one of the things I I found myself thinking many times that they were that you know in writing this book that they were right about a whole lot more than I realized when I wrote the first one. Um, now that didn't mean you know, it doesn't mean I've embraced all their theology or anything like that, but nonetheless, um, some of their observations were more astute, I think, than I realized. And you know, some of these are more subtle, but um, I think that one of the things that they pick up about uh, at least a tendency among some evangelicals—I'm not sure how—I wouldn't want to say all <laughs> by any means, sure—but a tendency to um, to be too controlling, you know, in various ways. In fact, I think one of the things the Lord's tried to make me sensitive to is how well-meaning evangelicals who want to hold on to the truth. I mean, I want to hold on to truth, but at the same time, um, can actually beat people, you know, with truth (laughs) and, and not model, you know, how Jesus, um, balanced and wed together in himself, he embodied grace and truth, like it says in John 1. Um, and I think that, you know, by, you know, if we use truth that way, we can use it as a weapon. And that drives people's hearts away, you know, from from the Lord. I think they're sensitive to that, you know, these guys. Um, and I think that they also... Um, 
what, what's the word? Um, maybe it's partly because they've you know grown through and lived in postmodern times, but they've got baloney detectors. <laughs> it was a yes, lack of yes. better word. Um, they they are quick to detect arrogance, and you know I, I don't think I was attuned to that until I paid attention to what they were saying. Um, Tony one time gave me a response to my, in my first book. He said, you know, um, you know, pastors, you know, he found might speak as though they've got invincible truth, you know, with this proud confidence. And I took that in the epistemic, you know, sort of way that, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, we can have this utter certainty. And, yeah, it fits with that. But there's there's more than just the theory of knowledge. There can be an attitude of arrogance with it. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that ties with a sense of being naturalized, because I think that's a fruit of relying on our own selves, <laughs> rather than the yeah. Spirit of God, depending on Him to do the conviction. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I think the, you know, in, I want to be careful in saying this here, too, because, yes, I think the gospel is surely, you know, about our salvation from our sins, being with the Lord, you know, um, uh, after we die, for sure. But when they stress, when when some of these guys stress uh, how uh, the gospel can be, um, uh, what's the word, uh, transformed into people's minds such that it's like, this is what it's all about, going to heaven when we die. Uh, Get out of hell free card. Right. And I, I think they're right, you know, and that emphasis is misguided. I mean, I want as many people to be in heaven as possible, sure, you know, to know the Lord now and, you know, then. But I think that they were right, you know, in the sense of like Dallas Willard talks about. It it, it ends up being a gospel of sin management now, rather than really living in the fullness of life Jesus offers us now. And, and my yeah. goodness, I think that's the thing that will really draw people. And yeah. we see the we can see the spirit poured out on the church, you know, too. So I think they've, I think they've hit that really well. Um, And I think just another quick one, I I think that they are right in that because of that kind of emphasis, uh, too many evangelicals have not really focused on ethical concerns, you know, in broader society. I mean, they're right, you know, to point out environmental concerns and social justice concerns. Uh, one of my colleagues at Talbot just put out an article. He says, you know, got to keep them in order. Gospel's first priority, but don't forget that we are commanded to do social justice. And I think that's well taken. But we could lose yeah. that second if we think it's all about going to heaven when we die. Right, right. And and it also, I think it's important the way we define social justice, because often— you know, and I know that when we're talking, we mean biblical justice and and, yeah. and that kind of thing. And and but it's so interesting the point you make about the the get out of hell free card type salvation because I think that the the evangelical culture and this is actually something that I've been thinking a lot about. And as I write my book, I'm I'm trying to give a little bit of attention to this. Even growing up in the evangelical church in the the late '80s and '90s. It, there uh-huh. seemed to be a lot of focus on heaven and hell. There was the traveling drama, Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames, where you know people would flood the altars because they were just terrified that that the devil would drag them off to hell. And, and it really wasn't about 
putting their trust in Jesus so much. And I'm not blaming that play. I'm sure there are people who gave their hearts to Christ at that at that play and are walking with him now. It's not just an... But, but it just seemed, even in second grade, I was remembering my teacher taught about hell all the time in, in our little Christian school. And so it was, there was so much fear in involved in salvation. And, uh, and there, I mean, of course we fear God and there's an appropriate fear, but there did right. seem to get lost in, in the greater evangelical culture, a focus on a holistic salvation. And, mm-hmm. and that was actually one of the things that drew me to, uh, what would end up becoming a progressive church. It, I, I didn't huh. know that at okay. the time, but they had some of the same critiques that I did. Some of the same, huh. um, you know, like you said, baloney meter stuff. And, and that's what drew me to, to the church that uh, I've told my story about, you know, where my faith was challenged because I didn't dream yeah. that they were willing to throw the gospel, the act, the real gospel away along with, you know, some of the errors, um, which I'm so thankful that the Lord was so with me to, to walk me through that. But, um, mm. but yeah, mm. I, I get what you're saying because some of those critiques that they brought in in the beginning were legitimate. They, the, these were things yeah. that we needed to look at as a church. But, yes. but for me, I think it always just came down to the gospel. And so I want to kind of drill down on that a little bit. And one of, okay. one of the, I think a really clear explanation of what, a lot of progressives believe about the gospel can be found in Brian McLaren's A New Kind of Christianity. Hmm. And um, he he calls kind of the, the typical evangelical, or at least his understanding of that gospel, the Greco-Roman six-line narrative. So right. I'd love it if you could unpack that for us. What What is Brian McLaren's Greco-Roman six-line narrative? What does he mean by that? Okay. Well, uh, He's taken a step further than um, those who have read just his earlier books uh, might realize. There he seems to con- you know, contrast modernity and postmodernity. Now he's digging back deeper and saying, okay, the root problems were further back than I think he realized earlier. And he's thinking that uh, our contemporary understanding, this is his trying to say as he might say it, our contemporary understanding of the gospel as evangelicals has been deeply shaped by um, Greek philosophy, especially with its emphasis on dualisms. I'll give a few examples. And then um, the Roman outlook of uh, being imperialistic um, and, and, I, and arrogant you know, with that. So he, he, he looks at it and says this first line or first step with it, he looks at, um, you know, God's creation as originally made, and he describes it as being, on this view, perfect, uh, without any change. Uh, it's static. Um, it's good, but, it, but to be good, it's got to be this perfect, static, unchanging thing. And he explains that as being like Plato's ideas of, or a neo-Plato, neo-Platonic idea, that these forms, uh, Plato had these ideas about universal qualities like goodness and truth and beauty are unchanging, you know, things. But um, he then explains the fall, uh, or, you know, into sin, um, as a as a shift into Aristotelian becoming, he says. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And 
uh, for Ar- on Aristotle's view, you know, or on his understanding of Aristotle's view, that means um, it, this is a profane, material, you know, kind of world. I guess contrasted with the Neoplatonic, you've got this perfect, unchanging kind of realm, uh, and then you've got that's the kind of upper story, you might call it, and then there's this a lower story, and it's the profane, you know, kind of the material, you know, kind of realm, and we. The fall, he thinks, is represented by you know, in terms of a a fall into becoming or change from something perfect into what changes and becomes a subject that stories can be told of. So it's bad, you know, that we had this change or being able to tell stories about things is marks a condition that's bad. And his idea of God, whom he dubs Theos. Um, you know, is this perfect platonic, you know, kind of God who loves perfection and hates anything that changes, anything that's less than perfect, and you know wants to destroy it. You know, just blows up in rage. You know, at this kind of stuff. So he says the third step. You know, well, he Theos or God. You know, this view is full of condemnation. You know, of his creation. You know, that is slip from perfection. And the fourth step involves, um, you know, salvation, uh, being, you know, just with God. And then the fifth or sixth steps, it's, there are two results that can happen. One is we end up, you know, being elevated back to this plane of perfection, which is, you know, heaven, or we are sent, you know, to a, a, an unchanging state of torment, you know, of hell. Um, both those, you know, two ends are are, um, are are static, unchanging, you know, for him. Um, and, and one of the things with the dualism, you know, kind of idea with that, um, one of the things he sees as far as a Roman mindset, he thinks he sees in the, the church uh, can be an imperialistic mindset of trying to convert people, you know, to Christianity as the the only way to God. Um, he's become a pluralist, you know, in his more recent writings, mm-hmm. uh, like Why Did Jesus, Modus, Moses, the Buddha, you know, et cetera, across the road, I think explains it pretty clearly. Um, and he sees that exclusiveness and arrogance, you know, in, in Christians, especially evangelicals. And he thinks that that also marked the Roman kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. And um, the... Um, the Greek mindset, he sees, uh, we've had this in, well, just even Plato's kind of structure of two realms. There's a dualism, you know, involved, you know, there. And also a dualism of uh, we are body and soul, and a dualism between creation and God, um, heaven and hell. And this dualistic kind of thinking, he thinks, has been imported uh, from the Greek mindset. Mm. And that it wasn't actually something, you know, that came from the the Hebrew, you know, outlook in the Old Testament, which he thinks is much more holistic. Yeah. So, so if we were to just summarize that, he's basically saying our whole idea, and tell me if I'm getting this right, because this is as much for my understanding as, as everybody else. He's basically saying the whole idea that 
man sinned and that separated us from God. And then God is, you know, the God has wrath for sin uh, and that we need to be saved from it to, to go to some eternal destiny of heaven and hell is really just an adopted view from, from Greek philosophers about dualism, about having a body and a soul that are these kind of two, one is good and one is evil. Is that, is that sort of in the ballpark there? Yeah. And one of the key things, um, and this may be jumping ahead a little bit, but I think that one of the, for, for me, I work as a philosopher and ethicist. And one of the things I, uh, I keep you know, looking for in people's views, because I, partly the way I've been trained, I think, to think, but um, is when you make shifts in the underlying nature of things, the ontology, if you will, the nature of what's real, it's bound to have ripple effects mm. in other ways. And that's one of the things that's happened here. In response to or uh, in reaction against this perceived dualism, and I think I think the traditional um, Orthodox Christian view you know we've inherited, it, you know, the best reading of scripture is a dualistic kind of one, that we are a union of body and soul right. and uh, things like that. And God is not, you know, um, identified with his creation or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a difference between heaven and hell. For them, um, there's a shift to seeing all creation as being one kind of thing. And it's all physical. Mm. And and that that one of the things that you know that comes out very clearly, I think, from Tony Jones. Um, he studied with Nancy Murphy, you know, and learned, you know, her physicalism, you know, there. Mm-hmm. Um, reading Rob Bell's more recent things too, um, you know, that about you know, everything's about matter and energy. Right. Yeah. Even saying God is, you know, God is energy. Paget's ideas in his book called Flipped. Um, and then when I read a book by um, Scott Burson called Brian McLaren in Focus. Have you seen that book? I've seen it, and I need to read that one. I haven't read it myself. I'd highly recommend it. Um, I talked with him, and that was based on his dissertation. And it didn't make the cut into the final book. But in his dissertation, he goes into McLaren's views about the nature of what's real. Mm. And it's very much from Murphy, um, that kind of every, creation is physical. Mm-hmm. And when you make those kinds of changes, several other things have to change. Um, you know, the nature of what, what's our core problem, yeah. uh, what's the solution, explaining our relationship to God, all that sort of stuff. We'll come right back to our discussion with Dr. R. Scott Smith in just a moment. But I want to tell you about a ministry that I partner with called Impact 360. They facilitate summer experiences for high schoolers, and one of those experiences is called Propel. This is where students spend a week in an active learning environment. They grow through engaging sessions, one-on-one discipleship, and experiential leadership training. Students are equipped in knowing who they are in Christ. And they're also given tools to influence their peers. You can sign up your student by going to impact360.org slash propel. You can use my name as a promo code. That's Alisa, all caps, A-L-I-S-A, for $25 off your tuition. I will be there. I would love to meet your high schooler at Propel this summer, where they'll be challenged to live out their faith with confidence. 
So with uh, now that you've kind of explained what McLaren's six, Greco-Roman six-line narrative is, what do you think he gets wrong about it? What What do you think are the main points where maybe he's taken a misstep and, and has led him down this path? Where do you disagree with him? Well, one of them is that very thing. Um, when McLaren... Um, you know, makes a, a move to say that really um, we are not a, a union of body and soul. We are bodies. And I should qualify that because in his generous orthodoxy, he talks about how the soul might emerge, you know, from certain capacities, you know, that once the brain is in a certain degree of complexity, these things might emerge and whatnot. Mm. But that is something that is an emergent byproduct, you know, of physical things. Creation seems to be physical for him. And so when you start down that road, and that's one of the things that came out in that discussion with that uh, uh, former student of mine in that class I taught mm -hmm. back in 2006, um, it started to come out that, yeah, he and others, you know, have made this move toward um, – you could call it an anthropological monism. You know, what kind of thing we are is one kind of stuff. We're physical. Well, then you start thinking about, well, what's the nature of sin? How do you how do you account for sin on that kind of view if we are physical? Because to me, you know, it sure seems like it's a matter of, you know, my will. You know, if I'm, you know, committing, you know, something, mm -hmm. I'm choosing this. Yeah. Um, maybe I've omitted something too, but, but, Sin seems to be a an attitude, you know, from the heart that I act on. But if you're just physical things, how do you account for that kind of stuff? You know, some these kind of notions. And so, sin has to change. And the way I've seen it described is a disruption of relationships. I think Paget describes it that way. Mm -hmm. So sin has disrupted relationships, but it's not like we somehow don't stand in relation to God already. Because if we are physical things, and the way they, the way Paget and Jones even goes here, and I think Bell too, and I think arguably McLaren, we are already in God. Mm. They've, be, they've, they've gone away from a theistic understanding to a panentheistic understanding. Yes. And, and that's in the progressive church, there are this kind of the thing that surprised me as I studied more was how many progressive Christians are very open about identifying themselves as penentheists. It's, yes. it's something that they openly embrace and say, this, mm. this is the nature of God. Yes. Wow. Yeah. So if, if we're already in relation to God in some way, shape or form here, and there's some metaphysical reasons that, you know, I tried to talk about in the book, you know, that explain that a little bit more too of why they might think that. But um, if we're already in a relation to God, we're standing this, uh, yes, we're somehow in God. It's not like then we need to establish a relationship with God. Right, right. So I would say it's by, you know, trusting Christ's atoning work on the cross for my payment for my sin. And then the spirit, you know, uh, comes into my life. I'm born again and all those good things. You don't need that. Right. It's, instead, you already in that relationship. So start working on your relationships. Yeah. In other words. Act ethically. Yeah. So start treating you know one another and you know in you know in the ethical ways and that emphasis on the praxis is great. I mean that that's a good emphasis. Um, 
But it's predicated here on the assumption that we are already in relationship to God. Mm-hmm. And and it's all based, I think, on this shift um, in terms of what's real. So that has effects then on in terms of the nature of what, what God's solution for our sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is no need for Christ to die on the cross yeah. as a penal substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Yeah. There's just need. And uh, besides issues of God being violent, you know, that, um, you know, McLaren, for example, just recoils at. Yeah. Um, so those are a few of the problems. Um, uh, McLaren, I think, also uh, overlooks, you know, uh, some other options to the uh, issues he sees from Calvinism that he reacts against, like this, you know, uh, strong predestination. Um, you know, he thinks that oh, it's immoral, you know, for God to simply predestine us to heaven or hell. Um, but he doesn't really engage with the Arminian, you know, type answers right, right. or a middle knowledge one. Um, and he, I think he badly misunderstands Aristotle, you know, just to yeah. look at this a little bit more as a philosopher. It wasn't bad that we change on Aristotle's view. Not at all. And and frankly, I think even biblically, before the fall, um, things were changing too. You know, just in terms of the depth that Adam and Eve grew and they're knowing each other and, and, and knowing God. Yeah. Uh, it's not like this was ever to be understood to be some static, unchanging thing. Well, that makes sense because when I've read about the state of the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that it was good, but it doesn't actually say that it was perfect because there was room to grow. It was, uh, it was, it had potential to change and become better. It was pure and it was ordered and and filled, but um, it wasn't fully yet what it was intended to be. So therefore, maybe perfect isn't the the right word to use there. Well, this is really good. This is all really helpful because I think there's some confusion among some people when they hear the phrase progressive Christianity. I think some people might think, oh, is that progressive in a more political sense? Or are progressive Christians just a group of Christians who are evolving on social issues, but underneath that, we all kind of believe the same thing. And the deeper I get into this, the more I research the more I realize that the progressive gospel is really, it's not just political, it's not just a a social issue thing. It's actually a completely different gospel. Right. And so I want to focus in on McLaren just as an example. He rejects that Greco-Roman six-line narrative, and you kind of hinted at this before, but he he trades that in favor of what he understands as a more Jewish understanding of the gospel. So if you'll unpack that for us a little bit, if somebody asked Brian McLaren, what is the gospel? What what is McLaren going to answer? What is McLaren's gospel? Well, I think the, the main things that came to, have come to my mind on that is that um, the good news is that we are already in relationship with God, you know, now. And so we need to, you know, put our focus on, on praxis. Let's, let's live in light of that. Uh, and he thinks, you know, the, the story we should embrace to do that is Jesus' story. As, as I think he, you know, has understood it, you know, and maybe other progressives too. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, as far as, um, the, yeah, the good news is, you know, again, that 
you know, while sin has damaged or disrupted, you know, maybe our relationship with God, it's not severed us. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not dead to God. And so... Um, how does he relate that with Jewish thought? Like, how, how does he, you know, because he's, he's basically asserting in the book that this is how Jews understood it. So maybe you can just unpack that a little bit. Well... I, I think that, um, that that's challenging, um, you know, to do. And I, uh, I think that McLaren and, and I think others, too, seem to embrace this idea that there's this holism, you know, in, in the Hebraic, you know, scriptures. Um, Tony Jones one time made a comment to me um, – trying to remember how he put it. Um, we were having dinner and oh, how, do you, how did he say it? I think it was something like this. Nancy Murphy's non-reductive physicalism was the best explanation that he saw for the unity of persons emphasized in the Old Testament. Thought, fascinating. Hmm. And I think that Maybe maybe another way to kind of play off that to to help see why would you why would you think that there's this unity of persons because we're this completely physical thing this unity of all physical stuff well if you look at a book by Joel Green um, I th- oh, I think it's called Body Soul and Life Everlasting um, he it's an interesting book he's mainly an exegete but he's also adopted this turned physicalism, you know, by Murphy, I think. And when he goes in there, he's basically critiquing the Cartesian view of dualism, substance dualism, that the body is like a mechanism and the soul is this radically different thing and there's such different things. How do they possibly interact? So you have this, it's like the, it's a disjunction almost. Mm. So instead, this it sounds so attractive to say, oh, my goodness, well, here's how we can be this integrated whole being. Now, one thing Green does, though, in that book, he just kind of mentions in passing an alternative and says, well, there's a holistic kind of dualism that someone like one of my mentors, J.P. Moreland, you know, argues for. But then he just doesn't pick it up and deal with it anymore. And the main target is the Cartesian view. Mm. And the alternative is well, physicalism, you know, satisfies this this holism. Um, again, how McLaren, I think, interprets, you know, the Old Testament, it seems like it's, you know, this. There's some parts where McLaren discusses uh, Genesis, um, Exodus, and uh, then one of the prophets, and I think it's Isaiah. And in that, he, he talks about how sin is, you know, it's like, can be treated like a coming of age story, you know, mm-hmm. like a father to his child. Um, God doesn't disown us because we're in his family. And I wouldn't do that to my daughter, for example, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But to set it up as though that there's not this need to punish sin, it seems like, is how he interprets it. And he, and he one of the things that's really strong for him and he, he said this very directly to me one time, that God just cannot be violent, you know, to him. Mm-hmm. He, he said something like, if God, you know, were to be violent, that, 
then the whole thing, and I think even Christianity would just fall to the ground for him. Hmm. So he's got a, there's something going on here that I don't know what it is, but there's more than just a interpretive uh, yeah. uh, intellectual framework, I think. But somehow he, this is really important for him. Mm-hmm. And he thinks, you know, that, you know, he wants to hold on to a God who is just and good and yet, uh, that colors his interpretations here, thinking that God can't, you know, punish sin. Yeah, he can't. He can't. Um, it's almost as though you know we lose God's holiness. You know, I think in this. And there seems to be this chasm between progressive Christians and historic Christians in the way that we think about God, in the way that we evaluate the actions of God throughout history. A common theme I come across in the progressive church and in books and and blogs and things like that is is this idea that I couldn't believe in a God who, and then fill in the blank. And so it's a way of relating God and evaluating his actions based on how I would behave and how I would act. Mm -hmm. And what would I do if I was a father or if I was a king or a judge or a ruler? And then if God doesn't meet that standard, then somehow he's subpar or that couldn't really be him. And of course, this contradicts the historic view of God in that God is other than us. We are not like him. He is not like us. And you know, when I ask myself that question, I probably wouldn't send anyone to hell, but that's because I have limited knowledge of justice. I have limited knowledge of love even. As hard as it is to grasp, I trust that God is both fully good and fully just. And and there just seems to be a chasm there between the two different groups and how we see God. And recently there was a debate between Paul Copan and Greg Boyd and it had to do with Boyd's hermeneutic, which he calls the cruciform hermeneutic, uh, which is very similar to uh, what Brian McLaren talks about in A New Kind of Christianity, where they view scripture as fossils in layers of sediment. That yes. uh, Boyd's, as far as I understand it, now I haven't read his his two-volume work on it, but as far as I understand it, it's basically evaluating the actions of God throughout the Old Testament, but filtering it through the attitude of Jesus on the cross of Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And if it doesn't fit through that filter, then it probably wasn't God or something along those lines. But something that was so interesting about that debate is that uh, Paul Copan pointed out that Boyd in his two volume work didn't even define the word violence. And so when he's accusing God of violence or saying God doesn't act violently, uh, his his idea of violence was without definition because, of course, there's different kinds of violence. Yes. And uh, so I'm wondering if, you know, maybe you've encountered something like this in your research. I, I just came out of a, a, a panel discussion between two faculty members about um, immigration. And this was one of the subplots, um, you know, in it. You can see, okay. Yeah. Um, violence in the sense of excluding, you know, having, you know, not having open borders. Uh, and, and it got me thinking, it's like, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Is any kind of coercion, you know, violent then? You know, if I have um, some sort of penalty, you know, for my daughter, uh, l- let me pick a personal example and use for myself, you know, let's say, or not, she hasn't done this yet, but to say, um, Hey, I come home uh, way after curfew that my parents set for me, 
And guess what? You know, I uh, lost my privileges, you know, for uh, using the car, you know, for the next week. Okay, was that violent? Right, because it's going to cause her some discomfort and even possibly some suffering. And and one of the things that was running through my mind after this lunch, but also when you just said this, and it reminded me of something I wrote in the book, too, uh, I just can't help but think that the kind of God we end up with this on, a view, on this view is a codependent God. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up, because as you were talking, I knew that I had highlighted that, and I was looking on yeah. my Kindle to try to bring it up, and I'm so glad you brought that up, because that oh. is such a perfect word to describe really the end game of this type of thinking. You, you end up with a God that's codependent with you. And, and those are not moral heroes. <laughs> right, right. You know, I, I've had to deal with enough of that in my own life, uh, marriage and, uh, and family upbringing. And it's like, oh, you want to grow out of that. Yes, yes. And, and, yeah. there, and there are no boundaries, you know. Yeah. On this. yeah. And it's just ugly stuff, I think. And you end up with a God who's not really worthy of worship, I think. Yeah, that's well put. Well, as we as we close out here, what advice would you give to Christians who are just bombarded with all kinds of different ideas all the time, and they're trying to be discerning during these times, but it can just be discouraging and confusing? What advice would you give about discernment? Well, um, a few a few general ideas. One is um, try to research things, you know, carefully. I would actually read their own works, not just what others have said about them. Um, uh, hopefully, my book, you know, could be of help. I think Scott Burson's book called uh, Brian McLaren in Focus is really worthwhile. Um, I was really glad to see you know that come out. Um, I think another would be to realize that uh, these. Um, you know, emergence or formerly known as emergent folks, um, they're really onto some key things, you know, that are, that are awry, you know, with, uh, all too many evangelical churches. Um, but I think at the same time, I think they've misidentified, you know, a lot of the key problems here. Mm-hmm. And I think, like you mentioned earlier, um, uh, you know, I think that this is, actually due to a common problem that they share with evangelicals, both been deeply shaped by naturalistic kind of thinking mm. in, a, in a sense that God becomes largely irrelevant. Mm. And that is just not, you know, what uh, I see, you know, in Scripture at all. God wants to be intimate with us, wants us to wholly depend upon Him. Uh, listen to his voice, uh, know his presence and power and all its fullness. That is the kind of thing Christianity is supposed to really be like. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I, I don't think either of these are really, uh, all, not really, all too many are not really living this out. Mm. Um, so I, I'm afraid that evangelicals, you know, can distance God, but I'm afraid that that's what happens on this kind of theology as well. Um, in fact, God, I don't even know how we can have a personal relationship with God on this view. You know, if if we're just physical things, let alone, I don't know what that makes God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, since God is called energy himself, right, right. sounds like God may not be personal either. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, 
I guess the bottom line, you know, uh, encouragement I would try to do is uh, what I said in the very end of the book is try to really seek the fullness of truth as well as the fullness of the spirit, because I think that's what the Lord really wants us to live in. Um, and and that's what I think I, I want both groups I've you know looked at in this book to really embrace. Well, that is great advice. And. Uh, your book exemplifies that. And so it's called Authentically Emergent in Search of a Truly Progressive Christianity. Scott, thanks so much for your time and for sharing your thoughts with us today. Well, thanks for having me very, very much. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button, or simply subscribe to the Alisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh.